On air, online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. I worry about how much the British backpacker's going to move around Australia. It's, it's so easy to see the British backpackers coming into Sydney, Melbourne as their first port of call, then perhaps moving up and down the East Coast. But the 88-day programme was a really good programme that it helped direct backpackers into regional Australia. Changes to the visa requirements for young British backpackers could have a dire effect on the seasonal agricultural workforce. And what happens if it rains and falls on your cherries when they're just about ripe? You and I probably hope for the best, but in the serious business of commercial crops, helicopters are an important tool. We just go from orchard to orchard. Um, We do drying here in the north and in the south. So normally we can dry two to three rows at a time, depending on the vegetation stage of the cherries. We'll have more on that shortly. Also, a rare, round chicken egg. Yes, you heard correctly. Get the puns out. Send us a text 0438 Six. But first, the endangered Morgian skate, a prehistoric ray species, is only found in Macquarie Harbour on the west coast. The harbour is also home to 11 salmon farm licences and in the past two decades, dissolved oxygen levels in the harbour have coincided with a decline in skate numbers. So a captive breeding program has started, but in just a few past few weeks. Two out of four of the adult skates have died. To tell me a little bit more, we've got news reporter Adam Holmes here in the studio. Good afternoon, Adam. G'day, Fiona. Thanks for joining the Country Hour. Now, tell me a little bit about the Morgian skate and why does it actually need a captive breeding program? Yeah, so the skate is a small race species that, like you mentioned, has been around since the dinosaurs, basically. It lives right at the bottom of Macquarie Harbour and requires dissolved oxygen to reach the depths where it lives in almost complete darkness. The harbour faces a range of pressures. Obviously, the flows were altered by hydro dams. There's a history of mine runoff and then there's the salmon farms. The substantial increase in the farms from 2009 to 2015 caused a progressive decline in dissolved oxygen levels. Skate numbers declined substantially in the years that followed down to less than 1,000, and they faced a real risk of extinction. Uh, Mitigation efforts appear to have not improved conditions that much in the past few years, so reduced biomass and um, nitrogen monitoring. So last year, the state and federal governments funded IMAS to start a captive breeding program to create an insurance population, they call it. Okay, so this captive breeding program, uh, how does it work? We saw little pictures with handfish, so is it the same sort of thing? Uh, I think, yeah, it's quite, quite, a, quite a bit different to the handfish. They're obviously, yeah. No, I mean the, the actual breeding program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's also, yeah, very different to the handfish breeding program. But in, um, so in, in December... Scientists collected four adult Morgian skate, uh, two male and two female, and also 50 eggs uh, from the harbour to be taken to IMAS at Taruna. They were placed in holding tanks with high levels of dissolved oxygen. It was actually quite a bit higher levels of dissolved oxygen oxygen than what they had in the harbour because you can't put them in, I guess, uh, degraded conditions. 
Um, they're also incomplete darkness to match the harbour's conditions, so the scientists have to kind of fumble their way around a little bit, but that's, that's what he said anyway on the radio this morning. Um, some of the eggs have hatched already and are being monitored. The remaining, remainder of the eggs are expected to hatch over the next seven months. They will then live their lives at high mass, uh, about five years for the adults and ten years for the hatchlings, provided they survive. There's, there's so much we don't really know about the skate, so scientists are learning as they go, uh, and particularly as we found out this morning about their uh, their mortality. Okay, so we talked to, um, I think Morning spoke to one of the IMAS scientists this morning, didn't they, Jason Simmons? Yeah, that's right, Professor uh, Jason Simmons. Uh, okay, so what's happened and some of the skate have died? Yeah, so uh, Professor Simmons unfortunately uh, updated us that two out of four had died not long after they arrived at the Taruna facility. So he explained there could be a, a, a wide number of reasons for this, for why this happened, and we don't really know at this stage. Um, you know, stress, change conditions, and uh, they're working to, at the moment to work out a reason because it's so important to know about the mortality of this endangered species. Um, they, when they applied with the environment department to collect the skate, they did expect twelve percent of the adults to die. But obviously, fifty percent have died so far. Two out of four. Um, one, he said that one of the skate appeared quite unsettled from the start and and died, and then another seemed okay but died suddenly, and the other two uh, seem to be going okay at the moment. He says, uh, so they he says that they won't be taking any further adults either because it's quite a application process to be able to take an endangered species out of its habitat, uh, but the program will continue with the two adults and the eggs. Um, it kind of shows how precarious the species is and just how little we know about it still. But Professor Simmons says they want to learn as much as possible as they can from, from the deaths as well. Okay, so what is the role of salmon farming in the skate's future? And are the companies part of this captive breeding program? So the salmon industry isn't directly funding the captive breeding program. That's instead being done by the state and federal governments. But the industry does have a, a stake in this, obviously, because uh, conservation advice to Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek last year said that the salmon farms are the predominant factor. I mean, there's a range of reasons for the declined water quality, but the salmon farming did appear to be the predominant factor and the government obviously has a responsibility to create the insurance population to prevent an extinction. It would be one of the first extinctions of a race species caused by human activity in human history. Um, so the salmon industry is instead funding a trial to oxygenate the harbour, which will begin this month. So that involves sucking the water out, um, injecting it with nanoparticles of oxygenated water, and then returning the, that water back to the depths of the Macquarie Harbour so it's kind of like, I guess, a bubbler might be one way of looking at it. <laughs> wow. Um, and IMAS will oversee that trial as That's well. That's going to be interesting because it's a very big body of water. I remember doing a story and comparing it to so many Sydney harbours. <laughs> I can't remember exactly how many, but it's a big area, isn't it? Mm. Now, if people want to find out more, you've done a story on ABC Online, which looks at all the different bits and pieces and the science into it. And, and um, it's interesting also, you've got a really great map there that shows all the different farms on Macquarie Harbour. So 11, as you say. Mm. And, as, and the skate live in certain pockets of the harbour, I understand as well. So they're not spread out throughout the harbour. I think they only live in specific parts that are ideal for them. You've got a photo there where it's actually quite a big Morgian skate somebody's holding. 
Yes, yes, they can, they can grow. I mean, I'm not exactly sure, but at least a foot or so. I'm sure Professor Simmons will get in touch straight after to say <laughs> that maybe they don't get that big. Bit. Yeah, if you want to have a look, have, have a look at the ABC Tasmania News website and you'll see the story there. And uh, did you contact the, uh, the salmon companies? Uh, yeah, we did. But I think, like I said, they're not funding the, um, this, this program, so they're just going to leave it to the scientists and they're pushing ahead with the oxygenation trial. Okay, Adam Holmes uh, from the newsroom, thanks very much. Thanks, Fiona. Ollie, can you say jack jumpers? <laughs> Hello, it's Lucy Braden here, sun kissed and back on your radio for 2024. This week on Drive, I have the hottest tickets in town to give away. Two tickets to a jack jumpers home game. Now we're talking. Tune in to Drive all this week, listen out for the keywords, then enter the draw via the ABC listener. Lucy Braden. I'll tell you more on Drive. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, backpackers provide a vital workforce out here and in other rural and regional towns, working at cafes, pubs, farms and stations. But under the free trade agreement, travellers from the UK will no longer be required to work regionally, which till now has been the mandate for all working holidaymakers seeking a visa extension. The changes come into place on the 1st of July this year. They're only for the UK travellers, which do make up the largest demographic of backpackers. Alan Smith or Smithy from Outback Aussie Tours in Western Queensland said it'll be a huge shock to small towns. There's a huge reliance on, on backpackers uh, for our um, team that we need to build up to, to handle such a seasonal activity. And I guess that's where the problem is. You know, tourism is quite seasonal and we do need a seasonal and a transient population to fill that gap. Whilst we'd love to have more people uh, working locally, what do they do over the other times of the year? And when is the busier months of the year for you? Well, our peak peak time is the June-July holidays because from Easter through to really June we start to see the grey nomad numbers build up with the caravans and that sort of thing. And, but uh, yeah, June-July is the peak. And they say Mother's Day to Father's Day is the tourism season. Not quite true, uh, but depends on how busy the school holidays are in September. That was Alan Smith or Smithy from Outback Aussie Tours in Western Queensland. Now, Sarah Clark is a backpacker from a small town in the north of England. She's come to remote Australia voluntarily to get the rural experience. So I came out here at the end of September and so I've only been here about three and a bit months, but... I love it and I I don't plan on going back to the UK anytime soon. Um, I'm really hoping I can make something work out here and and get my permanent residency. And and everyone's so friendly and welcoming. And and yeah, I mean, obviously the pub here, they're very used to having backpackers working here. So all the locals are quite used to all the interchanging backpackers that come through. And then so the visa changes come into effect on the 1st of July this year. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, so because I don't have to now do my 88 days, my, my rural work, 
to get my second year's visa I have no need to be to be working out here but obviously I chose to come out here because I wanted to and I thought it would be a good experience and I thought I'd really enjoy it but yeah I think it's I think it's a really good thing and I'm I'm glad it's there but also I can see how it's going to affect places like this it will impact things as in they probably won't come out as much but then again there'll be still be people like me that want to come out here for the experience and want to sort of live out here or work in a more rural place um because I, I do think the appeal is there i think it is a lovely place to come and be and what have been your aussie highlights of being out here <laughs> oh i mean the cow we, we have a calf here called barney who is hand reared bottle fed twice a day he's treated as like a pet and um, he's lovely and he's really friendly but that's sort of a you that's not something you'd get in a city you're not going to have a pet cow in the middle of brisbane and yeah i just i just love the the atmosphere of everyone and everyone being so lovely and welcoming and happy to sort of get to know you and have a chat it's, yeah it's nice and that was British backpacker Sarah Clark talking to Longreach reporter Grace Nakamura about UK backpackers no longer having to complete 88 days of regional work. Now, the cherry picking season is just about over. And for some helicopter charter companies, their cherry season is over too until spring. Many cherry orchards nervously await rain and have the chopper pilot's number ready to book in a cherry drying session to blow the water off to stop the cherries splitting. Adam Stobart flies helicopters with helicopter resources based across Tasmania. He chats with Claire Burbrick to talk about cherry drying and the other interesting areas they're involved in. It's summertime as it comes around to Christmas time when the cherries are coming ripe. If we get any rainfalls that are a little bit unseasonal, uh, then quite often we get called in with a helicopter to help dry the cherries each season. So that involves us hovering over the top of the cherries to knock any excess water off the fruit to avoid splitting. How does the splitting happen? Uh, so the skin can't expand at the same rate as the actual fruit uh, and as it absorbs the water it'll get to the point where it'll just split the skin. So it's important or imperative to get that water off as quick as possible. And how much rainfall would require your services? Uh, it depends a little bit on the stage of the fruit but really once we start getting past 5 to 10 mils of rain we're coming into that danger zone um, and it's also the amount of time that the water will sit on the tree for um, or on the, the fruit. So the quicker we can get it off the better for the, for the orchard. Yep. How much warning do you need to get prepared to do the cherry drying? Uh, if my growers are organised and really nice, they'll give me a call the night before. Otherwise, it's the 4.30, 5 o'clock call in the morning and off we go. Uh, generally, though, we kind of know what the weather's going to do overnight, so we prep the night before. And as soon as it's first light, then we're off and, and into it. How many cherry growers do you have on your books? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. We try and join all of our orchards together so no one's paying the large ferry fee. We just go from orchard to orchard. Um, we do drying here in the north and in the south. So normally we can dry two to three rows at a time, depending on the vegetation stage of the cherries. Uh, also depends if they've got bird netting on top of them. will determine my height, but it's a, a fast running pace and we're probably 15 to 20 feet off the top of the trees. We want to put enough row to wash onto the trees to 
uh, blow and make the tree shake, but if we're too low, we'll actually bend the tree and snap the limbs. And if we're too low, then obviously we can start bruising the fruit as well. So it's a mixture of trying to find the right height and the right speed to get the right result. So normally it ends up being someone standing in the orchard getting a little bit wet for the first couple of passes to make sure that you've got the right right result. I did wonder that if someone was watching down from below. Do you have 100% success getting rid of that water? I don't think we've actually measured, but I would have thought so. The guys keep bringing me every year, so I think that's probably a good good result. And do you have any idea of what uh, value of crop you've saved if you've done the flyover? I'd actually hate to add up the dollars in it. It'd have to be over the million, I would have thought. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I think some of the guys are picking up to five, six tonne of fruit a day on most orchards, so at a pretty good penalty rate of 80 plus dollars a kilo, I think it adds up pretty quickly. Yeah. And can you share what you charge to do the half hour blowover? Uh, it varies. We charge an hourly rate, uh, so it depends on their orchard. Uh, some growers can be as little as $500 to do an orchard. Others can be in the thousands, depending on the size of them. So it's well worth doing it then? It, it sounds expensive when you think about the cost of the helicopter, but when that cost is put against the retail value of the fruit, it's not actually as, as large a cost. Would I be right to say that cherries are the only crop that seriously at risk from rain? Yes, Yep. So cherries are unique. We need to keep the frost off them in early springtime. So you'll hover around of a night time to keep the frost off a cherry. Uh, otherwise, as they're blossoming, uh, you, that frost can burn that tip out of them and will reduce the fruit. So during that early September period when they're in, in flower, we don't want a frost on them. So the helicopter's used to drag warm air from above and dissipate and push that cold air out over the orchard. And then at this time of year, it's about trying to keep the rain off the, off the crop. What about vines? Do you do any grape frost control? Uh, not here in Tassie. I've done it elsewhere around Australia, but not here in Tassie. We seem to be a better climate for it and they're a bit more hardy. Uh, so they tend not to need as much frost protection. What other jobs do you do for agriculture in Tassie? For us, we do a lot of forestry work. Um, we don't do any of the ag spraying side of work. The main component of our company is the Antarctic contract, so we head to Antarctica each year. Um, we do fire support, so we've got uh, a machine on the contract for Launceston in the northern state, um, and that's on a 15-minute ready for a dispatch. Yeah, the rest is general uh, construction, utility-type work. Do you have a helicopter base down at Antarctica? We've got two working down there currently at the moment on the ice core project. Currently down in Antarctica, there's a team of four, uh, two engineers, two pilots. Adam, when I spoke to you earlier today, you were at Waratah. What were you up to there? Uh, we were concreting for a new waterfall viewing platform at Waratah, at the bottom of the Waratah Falls. So we lifted in concrete for the builders and then lifted in all of the steel work for them to construct the viewing platform. So it should be finished in the next couple of weeks. You're from a rural background yourself. Are you still farming? Yes, yeah, still farming. So I still chase sheep round, still uh, do that in between, uh, flying as well. So you're pretty busy? Busier than I'd like to be, but uh, that's farming though. Sounds like a lot of fun. Claire Burberry chatting to Adam Hoey Stobart at the Helicopter Resources Hangar in Launceston. New from ABC Books. We've already fallen in love with Muster Dogs. No one would have predicted that a show about a bundle of puppies could take the nation by storm. Now the series narrator, Lisa Miller, takes you behind the scenes in the new book 
Master dogs from pups to pros. Like so many of the shoots, not everything went to plan. I mean, they were working with animals, right? Master dogs from pups to pros by Lisa Miller. Book and audiobook available in bookstores and online. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. I'm going to apologise up front for this, but there's a fair bit of excitement on a pasture-raised egg farm on the New South Wales north coast with the discovery of a round egg. While reports online suggest such a find is one in a billion, we can confirm this is a one in a million find at Woodland Valley Farm. That's the number of eggs Fabian Fabro's hens have laid over the past five years on his property at Fernvale, south of Mwilumba. Kim Honan asked the farmer which of the two and a half thousand chickens on the farm was responsible for the golden egg. She was in amongst 450 other friends, so she's uh, remained anonymous at this point. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she's in amongst a caravan of, I think the girls, the age of those girls would be about a year and a half old. Were you a bit surprised when you found it and who found it? One of our egg collectors uh, picked it up in the daily run. The eggs are collected early in the morning um, each day and... They found it and brought it back to my partner, Jody um, while they were grading eggs, and then the excitement began. So because it's a round egg, does it not meet the grade? Well, absolutely. It's a perfect egg. The shell's lovely. There's no cracks. There's absolutely zero reason uh, other than the rarity and um, excitement behind it that it wasn't put in with the others for sale. And um, your hands do create some uh, weird-looking eggs because a couple of weeks ago you posted a capsule egg. Yeah, I mean, Mother Nature's a, uh, a funny beast. Um, she's definitely not perfect, but she tries her hardest. And, yeah, we get amazing all, all manner of eggs from our first round egg to massive double yolkers. We've also had an egg inside an egg, which was a bit of a surprise. We didn't get that one uh, documented, unfortunately. That one was a Sunday morning breakfast, turned out to be. We had the capsule egg that was um, looked like a, a capsule from a Panadol or whatnot. And we get soft shell eggs. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing what actually comes out when you've got them this volume of egg and um, on a daily basis, you get all all wonders. Okay, can you explain to me why eggs are shaped the way they are and why they aren't round? So I've done a bit of research on this one too and the only there's two main schools of thought. I'd agree with one but not not so convinced on the other and the first one is that they're um, oblong shape or oval shaped rather to... um, prevent them rolling out of the nest as easy. So obviously birds um, lay a cluster of eggs, some in sort of safe nests and others in fairly precarious positions. So the shape of the egg prevents or um, doesn't prevent but slows it down and stops it from rolling out of the nest. The second reason that I've found is that um, people say for the strength, the strength of the, the shape is quite strong, but it is only on one axis, and that's from long end to long end. You may have seen school experiments where kids have stood on the tops of eggs um, and it holds the weight of a child or adult even quite easily if you get it in exactly the right point. 
but I can't see um, why Mother Nature would design an egg that way when the bird actually sits on it on its shortest axis. So, yeah, they're the two reasons that I've found, but I'm guessing the main one would be to stop it rolling out of the nest so easily. And so what have you done with this round egg? At the moment, it's sitting on my partner's desk, sitting there, not sure what to do with it at the moment, but, um, yeah, we'll see where where it takes us. What you did discover is that the egg isn't perfectly round, <laughs> um, yeah, just I mean, slightly slightly off, a few mils. It is. I put it on the vernier calipers, and it is, well, Jody, my partner, put it on the vernier calipers, I should say, and it was a couple of mils out of perfect, being geometrically perfect. But looking at the other couple of eggs that have been posted online, it does look more spherical than this, that's for sure. Are you tempted to just crack it, you know, and have a taste? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's always that temptation for sure. Maybe it will end up on a um, poached on, on a nice piece of sourdough with avocado on a Sunday morning. Who knows? Oh dear. And that's Fabian Fabro from Woodland Valley Farm at Fernvale, south of Mwoolumba in the Tweed Valley. Time now for the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Fiona. Inspectors have been sent in to investigate the death of a worker at a central Queensland coal mine. Two men were working in the Fuel Bay area of the Soraji Mine near Dysart around midday yesterday when one was crushed between two mining vehicles. The 27-year-old was taken to hospital where he died from his injuries. Operations at the mine have been suspended. Voting is about to get underway in the Iowa caucus, the first big event of the US election year. Two fire trucks are attending a small bushfire in Launceston's northern suburbs. The fire is located on Prosser's Road in Ravenswood and is expected to be brought under control shortly. The TFS says the blaze is of minimal concern and it's being controlled. And Tennis Australia boss Craig Tiley says they want spectators to quickly enter Australian Open stadiums but denies there's been a rule change. This year's tournament at Melbourne Park is allowing fans to find seats between games and not when players swap ends. It's prompted frustration from several players waiting to star play, including Australia's Jordan Thompson, who labelled the tournament the wokest ever. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Michael. Time now to cross to the Weather Bureau and good afternoon, Luke Johnston. Good afternoon, Fiona. How are you going? Very good, thanking. Now, looking at the radar, been pretty dry at the moment. Any rain about? Yeah, very dry so far. So nothing up to 9am. Since 9am, there's been a couple of very light showers reported about high ground in the northeast and the northwest, but we're only talking 0.4 of a millimetre at Mount Barrow and Fisher River. So barely anything. Mm. Still fairly dry. Yep. Tell it's us about warm. the outlook. Oh, it's uh, warm. Well, tell us any, any temperatures, if you've got any as well. All right. Well, the hottest it's been so far today is 28 degrees in Bushy Park, but it's likely that it'll get a little bit warmer before it cools down. Um, probably temperatures peaking around 4 o'clock today, maybe quarter past 4, I guess. Wow. I'm just making stuff up now. Uh, Hobart's uh, climbed up to 27 degrees, which is what it's sitting on now. might get a little bit hotter as well. For the remainder of today, other than those light showers continuing in the very far northwest and northeast of the state, not even Launceston, um, we might see some Thunderstorms develop about the far west coast later tonight, uh, but not expecting anything significant until tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, a band of rain will come across the state during the morning and afternoon period, bringing with it some 
reasonable-looking thunderstorms. Uh, it looks fairly wet, particularly for the northern half of Tasmania tomorrow. Pretty widespread falls between 10 and 30 millimetres likely, potentially 25 to 35 millimetres under some thunderstorms uh, in sort of one-hour-ish periods tomorrow. So keep an eye out tomorrow morning if there's a severe thunderstorm warning issued because we'll be issuing one of those if we see significant convection uh, develop. Once that goes away, though, uh, through tomorrow evening, it should settle down quite quickly. There'll be a shift back to westerly winds. It'll be cooler than what it has been, but not necessarily cold. And uh, showers statewide on Thursday, focused into the west, but still sort of 5 to 15 millimetres for most, most areas of Tasmania. Any warnings at all? Yeah, warnings-wise, a strong wind warning today for Storm Bay, Frederick Henry, Norfolk Bays, east of Flinders Island and remaining lower eastern, southern and western waters between Wineglass Bay to Stanley, excluding the southwest coast. A bit stronger tomorrow with a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, all the southeast inshore waters apart from the Derwent Estuary. Also bear in mind there could be that uh, severe thunderstorm warning issued for northern Tasmania tomorrow. And uh, what else is happening on our coastal waters as well? Right, well, pre- pretty, uh, pretty consistent. Some might even say boring northeasterlies today, uh, 20 to 30 knots, a little lighter in the southwest. Uh, that continues into tomorrow morning. Eventually, tomorrow, the winds will shift west to northwesterly, 15 to 25 knots, and then increase to 30 knots again through Bass Strait from late afternoon. The swell's pretty relaxed at the moment as well. For Tasmania, west and south has a southwesterly 1.5 to 2.5 metres, decaying a little bit more into that 1 to 1.5 metre range tomorrow through Bass Strait and northeasterly to around 1 metre increasing or building towards one to one and a half metres tomorrow. Northeasterly also coming onto the east coast, one to one and a half metres today, one to two metres tomorrow. Significant wave height in the west coast off Cape Sorrow, 1.6 metres at the moment. Luke Johnston, thank you. Thanks, Fiona. Keeping you updated every day, the Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen. Now, technology is advancing the ag sector, there's no doubt. But what happens if technology isn't regulated? Going to the local farmer's market, you can be pretty certain the fruit was hand-picked. But in the future, maybe it's a robot picking it. Agricultural food researcher Robert Archdiacono gave a speech recently at an agri-food conference in Hobart and he spoke to Eliza Closer, firstly talking about the alternative ag practices emerging in the sector. So conventional agriculture is monocultures where we grow one crop at a time on big amounts of land, it's long straight rows, it's um, this uniformity and this is kind of driven from a production system we have where we need to maximise how much we grow. Alternative agriculture pushes back on this and it's a bit of a political, it's a bit practice where politically they're saying well in having these monocultures we have impacts on landscapes. Um, Nature doesn't have monocultures. You don't see one of something in nature. We have all this biodiversity. So Alternatives looks to push back and say, well, let's actually have different crops together. Um, Let's not necessarily go through conventional ways of selling through, in Australia, it's Coles and Woolworths, like 70% share. What about farmers' markets? What about going direct to customers? So less money is also politically here, going towards big institutions, and more is going to this distributive model of of owning, of, of power. Um, yeah. Yeah, and is that something that is uh, growing a lot in Australia, around the world, or Tasmania? Like, is this uh, something that it, sa- it sounds like it would really help 
towards addressing climate change and is that I guess kind of the point? Yeah so certainly the practice perspective in terms of of challenging the way we grow monocultures. Monocultures also require we put synthetic inputs you need chemicals and fertilizer and certain amounts of water because you're not getting that from the land from biodiversity and within a landscape if you have multiple crops together so yeah from a climate perspective certainly I think Tasmania is a really interesting case for me I was noticing yesterday walking around from where my accommodation is to here there was I didn't pass any Coles Woolworths there's a lot more smaller corner stores um, and I guess in terms of that rural, so regional sustainability, you've got that distribution of wealth. You've got great smallholder farmers here. Like you can go anywhere in Hobart and you see on the restaurants you've got different farms represented. And I think Tasmania is really a great example of how all these little alternative sort of farmers and ideas, and I don't mean alternative in a in a hippie um, kind of conception it's more just standing outside of what is that conventional dominant form of framing of agriculture that we know particularly on the mainland where it's huge big farms and i guess moving on to the technological advancements um in the agriculture sector um what have you been noticing and is there enough um, reg- um regulations around the technological advances and and do we need more and I guess to get to the, the technological advances now, it's, it's a, a really brief history lesson to look at kind of the rise of synthetic inputs, chemicals and fertilisers. This sort of came around after World War II and it meant we, we had a bigger population to feed, post-war sort of growth. Um, so it meant we had bigger farms, which meant smaller farmers were pushed off their land. So while we increased food production substantially, it had environmental impacts but also social impacts. Looking at the technology space, and we see this now with... Amazon, Google, um, Microsoft, all buying up ag tech companies. They already have this huge market share, but they're also then creating more and more of a market share in this new agricultural sort of, sort of sector. Um, and I guess for me, with potentially seeing this instance where those same power dynamics, it means it's going to be more for bigger and bigger farms. Those smaller producers will get squeezed out because they're not being able to be as efficient or as productive because they don't necessarily have these tools or access to these tools. So in terms of the regulatory landscape, what I'm seeing in Australia with my research is those people who are deciding the policy are also those who are designing the technology. So um, what I'm interested to say is, well, what about if we have social scientists? What if we have sort of community leaders? What if we have Indigenous peoples? What if we have local shop owners also in in this discussion to say well before we decide to push forward with certain technologies let's make sure we're asking some of those questions to say is this best for the environment is this best for this community is this best for us as, as a society and what could a future look like if uh, these technological advances aren't um, looked at through governmental policies and, and regulated yeah i guess if we sort of paint that dystopian future i, I see it as a dystopian future where there's no people in a food growing process. We've got stuff that is planted by our, our fields are, are ploughed by a tractor with GPS that maps the landscape through satellites. We've got it's planted by robots. It's picked by robots. It's automatically gone on driverless cars to get to, to where we to where we live. Um, for me, we all eat. We all have this connection with food. Um, and I think I, I said earlier that robots don't taste. Like there's all these human elements that come with food that I think. I, I think it's important we have people involved in that process. Um, technology is always going to play a role. Technology has these huge benefits aside, and I, no one disputes that. It's kind of just making sure we don't push a direction or an agenda too far, which excludes people, and for me, people in that connection also with the environment.
And that was Ag researcher Robert Archdiacono speaking there to Eliza Closer. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A mine waste expert says managing tailings and extracting further economic benefit is a major focus for the mining industry worldwide. The comments were made in response to news last week that mining company Newmont detected cracking and seepage of a tailing storage facility at its Tilfa Gold and Copper Mine in the East Pilbara. Tailings are byproducts from mining and they can be toxic to the environment and human health. Associate Professor Anita Barpaka Fox is an expert in mine waste. She says the industry is taking steps to significantly change the way tailings are managed. I would say that waste management practices within the mining industry are continually improving. It's an area where, as new technologies come on board, you know, companies continually evaluating how they can better manage that mine waste, how they can introduce those technologies to give them higher resolution data and really engage with how they can plan their waste repositories more effectively. What exactly is the impact it has on the environment? If it's such a big risk, what could that risk look like? If you if you venture to Queenstown, you'll see one of Australia's you know potentially worst examples of acid and metalliferous drainage impacts. So what we have there is historical mining practices didn't sort of you know dispose of the waste materials appropriately, and as a consequence, a lot of that acid is collected into the Queen River, through the King River, and into um, Macquarie Harbour on you know Western Tasmania, and that's led to environmental degradation of you know maybe 30 to 40 kilometres of, of riverine environment. So pH is really low. In some regards, you know, that river system has been aquatically dead. Um, so that's the kind of impact it can have. And, you know, those metals, they can be uptaken by flora and fauna and then cycle through the food chain. And that's not what we want to see. Um, yeah, I mean, this is that can be the legacy of historical mining practices where we didn't have sort of the standards of, of regulation and, you know, the knowledge of the technologies we have today. But these are some of the things that governments, unfortunately, have the legacy of having to to manage and deal with. Every single mine site, if there is an environmental risk associated with um, legacy wastes, needs to be addressed. Um, And certainly one thing we're seeing nationally speaking, um, one thing that's happening is that the different state governments and Geoscience Australia are trying to actually look at these waste materials as potential resources of critical metals. I mean, I think, you know, it might be the year of the dragon um, in sort of, um, I guess, the Chinese New Year of, year of dragon. But actually what I think is this is the, the, the year of the critical metal or mineral again. So, you know, you can't switch on the news without sort of, you know, people talking about the need for critical metals and minerals to support the energy transition. But part of that conversation also needs to extend around how mine waste plays a role in that, because contained in these waste materials are many of those energy transition metals that we need. So actually contained within the, all of these tailings that we're sort of talking about are contained in all these various TSFs. We actually have, you know, significant repositories of cobalt, of indium, of rare earth elements. And if we could actually go back to these sites and remind them, then we can actually environmentally de-risk these sites and remove that opportunity for seepage in, you know, older TSF, so we can remove that, you know, any risks associated with acid and metalliferous drainage. And we can also deliver some of these much sought after metals that we need for the energy transition. So nationally, it's really great that we're seeing Geoscience Australia, you know, the WA government's engaging in this. Um, 
the, the Queensland government, Northern Territories, New South Wales, um, South Australian government, they're all engaging in this national program to evaluate our waste and actually understand if it's, you know, potentially a resource that can deliver those, those metals for the future, which I think is a really sensible approach to actually rethink how we manage tailings. And that was Associate Professor Anita Pabaka-Fox from the University of Queensland speaking with Michelle Stanley. Now, at the Magic Millions Gold Coast yearling sales, more than $230 million is changing hands for some of the best bred thoroughbreds in the game, with still 400-odd lots to sell today, the final day. So far, the top-priced horse has been $2.1 million. Uh, but at that other end of the game, some horses have been snatched up for ten and twenty thousand dollars, and those cheaper horses can still go on to win big. A horse that was last year passed in and eventually sold for fifty thousand dollars just won a half million dollar race at the weekend on debut. Queensland Chris Anderson was the trainer backed during that sale process by the hunters Mick Malone. And despite some challenges, Chris told Amelia Bernasconi the gilding came home with the win. If it wasn't for Mick, I wouldn't have a horse to train. Mick buys uh, a lot of horses for Max Whitby and Neil Warriton. This horse originally passed in and, and, and Mick thought, you know, enough of him to suggest uh, us negotiating with the with the owners to buy him back at a relatively cheap price at, at, at 50000 So um, uh, Mick did that, and um, he um, thought it would be opportune to try and put a couple of high-profile owners in with, with Max and Neil, and uh, they were happy enough to give me an opportunity to, to do that, and um, very thankful they did because for guys like me, it's just so vitally important to have um, great support from, from those individuals uh, to, to – to obviously make me hopefully uh, a success. So um, from, yeah, I, I guess an, a relatively unwanted horse, um, he's turned out to be uh, very, very good in the end. Yeah, and so when you came out, uh, take me through the race. So you ended up from a $50,000 horse last year. He's now won the half million dollar Magic Millions Colts and Geldings debut on the weekend. What was the barrier draw? Was everything in your favour going in or take me through the play-by-play of the race? Yeah, look, our confidence was really dented because we drew the widest barrier. Really difficult for those who don't know. The thousand metre start at the Gold Coast is you're basically into a 180 degree circle. Uh, so if people aren't in racing, you've just got to think of a, a running race, for example. Um, so a 200 metre running race at the Olympics where those runners on the outside lanes get such an advantage uh, moving forward um, because of the fact that they've drawn wide. Well, horses are quite the opposite we all begin uh, across the same starting grid and yeah it's very very hard for horses especially on their debut to draw wide and he had to use a lot of fuel luckily he's got terrific gait speed so he jumped um, as good as anything and we were fortunate to sit outside the leader uh, after about 150 meters so once he found that position as a collective ownership group we're all standing together couple of big punters amongst a few of them too, I must say. Uh, our confidence certainly uh, really did grow. So to come from, like you say, you know, a relatively cheap purchase last year to come through the front, I understand he had a good win at a trial last month. So what's next now for Lead Me On? Does this, having this win behind him at such a prestigious race day, how does it set him up going forward? 
yeah, look, we'll just continue to assess them. Two-year-olds, oh, yes, you've just got to be really mindful that they're still not the furnished product. They've got lots of growing and maturing and uh, uh, what not to do. And when I say maturing mentally and physically, there's a lot of improvement still to come. Look, just on the debut too, I guess, you know, the, the, the beauty with this race and the romance with racing is, is wonderful and the fact that we're in the Colts and Geldings division. In the Phillies division, uh, the winner of that particular race, they paid a million dollars for. So it, it just goes to show that the beauty and the greatness of racing continues to tell you that for anyone out there listening and wanting to, to get involved in racing, you don't have to go and spend an enormous amount of money to have really, really good success. You, you probably need some good advice and the right people on your side to try and give you the best advice possible. But it's very, very achievable to, to own a very small share these days be involved in, you know, someone who's got a 5% share, I can guarantee you is having as much fun as someone who owns 100% of a horse. And that was Queensland Chris Anderson, and he was a trainer, uh, talking about one of the horses bought last year at the Magic Million sale for just $50,000 that just won a half-million-dollar race at the weekend on debut. And he was chatting there to our reporter at the Magic Million sale, Amelia Bernasconi. Let's go! Back in 2024. We packed it properly. Rick Goddard for breakfast. I'm really excited coming back. Breakfast with Rick. Get amongst it. Rick Goddard. Five days from 5.30. Our tricky question of the week. Let's go! It showcases the real artistic talents. Rick Goddard. Back for five in 2024. The most extravagant breakfast I ever had. Now you're talking. Rick Goddard. Back from January the 22nd on ABC Radio Hobart. ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. You're with Fiona Breen. Now, we had a couple of different stories on today that a couple of people have sent in a text on. We had the story about the Morgian skate. A couple of them have died in the captive breeding program, which is pretty sad. They're from Macquarie Harbour. Uh, where there are 11 salmon farms uh, and they're trying to breed them to increase that population. I've got a text from JP who says, put the salmon farming on shore, problems solved. Uh, Now we've got another text here. Uh, This is on, I'm not sure what this one's talking about, but gold coins are great for helping spread our wealth throughout the land. I regularly buy real money and gold coins from our community bank. Uh, to enable this, yes, let's keep our wealth local, be it in town or country. Now, it's summer, it's really warm today, and many people are making their way around the country with a caravan in tow. But a recent survey survey by the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator has shown that there are still many caravanners with a lack of understanding about sharing the road with the trucks. Brooke Nindorf, our Nindorf, our rural reporter in South Australia, has the story. Oh, in terms of phosphate. The NHVR has been running a campaign of ads over the last 12 months encouraging all road users to give trucks space. 
and it included a video from comedian Jimmy Reese. By law, truck drivers have to take rest breaks and park in truck parking to do so. Where do caravanners park? In the truck rest stops. Correct. Where should they park? Anywhere else. Caravanners, you need to leave truck rest stops free for truck drivers. Truck drivers need to use dedicated stops to manage their fatigue hours. So caravanners, you need to pre-plan it and find a designated caravan stop or caravan park to pull up. But it seems the message is still not getting across, with the recent survey showing 60% of caravanners parked in truck-specific rest areas, with a majority of them knowing they're not meant to. Steve Smith is the Executive Director of Corporate Affairs with the NHVR and says they're constantly having to share the message about sharing the road. Particularly this time of year and all holidays indeed, a lot of families like to hitch up the caravan and off they go to have you know, lovely time together with families. But we find invariably year on, year in, year out, a lot of people aren't understanding about truck-specific rest stops. And uh, so we, we recently conducted a survey of a 1,000 drivers um, and it reveals 60% of caravanners have parked in truck-specific rest areas before and a high number of them continue to do so. But the alarming factor out of that was 66% of the people um, surveyed knew that they shouldn't be parking in those areas but they weren't sure why. With a heavy vehicle, with all vehicles, fatigue plays a very important role in uh, people getting home safely, driving safely, etc., etc. But the men and women that drive our heavy vehicles, their fatigue, their work and their rest hours are regulated. They have to have certain breaks at certain times. They can't do extra hours. And a lot of them, for instance, like if you're doing a trip, I'll just uh, I'll say from Perth to, to Melbourne, for instance, it's not a you pack up in the morning and you get there in the afternoon. It's a lot longer than that. And given that their hours need to are regulated, they need to have rest and uh, work hours differentiated, they, they plan their trip on truck-specific parking bays where they can manage their fatigue, get their sleep they need, get their time off. And time after time, um, we see a number of these truck-specific parking areas filled up with caravans parked because they haven't planned their trip appropriately. So we just want to remind caravanners that, that our men and women that drive the trucks that get us our cornflakes for breakfast in the morning and our toast to have with it and deliver the meat into the uh, supermarket so you can buy your um, sausages and your bacon and eggs for your camping trip and your caravan. They're working all the time and, and they need to have these areas available to them when they need to stop to, to get their rest and their work to, uh, to make sure everybody on the road, not just themselves, but everyone on the road stays safe. What's classified as a truck-specific rest area? What makes that stand out? Look, you'll see there, there's, the signage is up there. It's truck-specific parking bay areas. You, you invariably find them as you're driving between you know, town to town. There could always be more, don't get me wrong, but um, they're there positioned and they've worked out as to areas where you know, trucks might need to stop for fatigue breaks invariably. And they're listed as truck-specific only. So it's just an area off the side of the road that has parking bays in it that trucks can utilise, pull up for the evening or the afternoon if, if that's the time they need to stop jump into their cab because remember most of these people this their truck and their cab is their home for four and five maybe six days a week so it gives them the ability to be able to plan their their trip they know where these places are they expect to turn up there and be able to get a park have a have good sleep and head off on the road and People look at a go trucks parking area. They don't mean they don't understand, and, and a little bit more research on their behalf would help here. And that's what we're trying to to help them be aware of it. But they don't understand that they're they're dedicated for the trucks, so they can manage their fatigue and uh, and drive safely on the roads. What other issues did you find came from this uh, this survey that caravanners might not understand that they might be doing wrong? The other thing we found during there was during the uh, the survey was that. 
people will be afraid to, if they're unsure, jump on the UHF radio. And, and a lot of, lot of caravanning setups these days and vehicles have a UHF radio. Pick the radio up, jump on the channel UHF 40 and have a chat to the truck drivers in the area. I mean, they'll help you out and say, not that this truck's specific only, mate, but you can, you know, another 15 kilometres up the road, there's a, uh, there's a BP service station that's you know, got some facility at the back you might be able to use or you're not far from the next town, etc. So... Don't be afraid to ask the question to our drivers out there. They're always willing to help. Um, in fact, you know, it, it helps them by helping you. And the UHF radio was just another message that Jimmy Reese was aiming to get across. A real caravan of flexes. An in-car UHF radio. Correct. And what's the only thing you use that UHF radio for? Unnecessarily talking to their partner over the radio while parking their van. Correct. What should they use it for? Talking to truck drivers on Channel 40 when they're about to overtake a truck or listening on Channel 40 to the truck driver who's going to talk to them when they're overtaking you. Correct. Steve Smith says truck drivers are conscious of many people not being fully aware of driving near heavy vehicles and so they're more than happy to have a conversation via the UHF. Yeah, and that's not just about rest stops either. It could be, you know, we've all done it before. We've all got a bit frustrated behind a heavy vehicle and wanting to overtake it. But use your radio to check with the driver that's in front of you and, um, and ask the question. I mean, he'll go, look, there's a, there might be a nice straight coming up or you're clear at the moment, mate, away you go, or just hold back, there's some traffic coming. The more you can communicate with the heavy vehicle drivers out there, you'll find they're friendly, they want to help you because they understand by helping you that their, their job is, uh, is going to be done safer and, uh, and they can get along with their business and everybody wins out of having that conversation, that, that one-on-one chatting with each other. And that was Steve Smith. He's from the National Heavy Vehicle Regulators Organisation. Ah, some great tips there. I didn't know half of that stuff. So that was Brooke Nindorf, our rural reporter in South Australia. Now I've got John O'Hara in the studio with me. He's got afternoons. He's hosting afternoons this afternoon. Who knew there were? Uh, you could speak on the on the CB radio and and have a chat to truck drivers about. Oh, hey, I want to overtake. Can't be a little bit scared maybe it's like don't you overtake me yeah that's so good you can you know you get onto that frequency and um and communicate with each other because it's it's, it can be dangerous out there and lonely out there so Mm. yeah and i suppose a lot of caravanners might already know that uh if they're on the road that they can do that channel 40 but um yeah Interesting story. Now, tell me, afternoons, what do we got going on? Big uh, few hours on afternoons today. Uh, we're chatting about the beautiful sighting of uh, the whales off the Bruni Coast last week. Oh. We've caught up with uh, the man who spotted them. He's going to tell us all about it. There are some photos doing the rounds on Facebook and uh, Twitter, etc., um, causing quite a stir uh, because it's just so incredible. People, people just can't believe they were that close into the coast. What sort of whales were they? Well, this is what we're going to do discuss ah. killer whales or orca whales you know we, what what is the correct terminology uh, oh, okay. so we will because there, wow. there's been much discussion about the use of the term killer whale ah interesting mm. yes i just always remember that vision on david and Attenborough, where they they go up on the shore and they grab a seal. Yes. So if I see one, I, if I saw one, I'd be I'd be out straight away. 
out of the ocean. Anything? What else is coming? Yeah, we've got some uh, music. Claire Ann Taylor, who of course is Tassie Music Royalty, uh, is in the middle of a statewide tour. She's got four dates left, so I will absolutely let you know where you can catch her if you haven't already. Um, she's going to play. Uh, we're going to play some of her new music, and then we're also going to chat with a finance expert about uh, the ins and outs of getting a home loan. You know, sometimes we don't know all the all of the information, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a literacy lesson on 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 what to know when you're going for pre-approval, how much money you need, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks, John. That's this afternoon. Thank you. ABC Sports coverage of the Australian Open Tennis. Don't miss a minute on the ABC Listener.